Hi, everybody, and a very pleasant afternoon to you wherever you may be. Welcome to Dodger Story, the podcast tracing Dodgers history over the years. I am your host. My name is Jeff, and I am a lifelong Dodger fan. I'm no expert, but I do know my Dodgers, and I know my Dodger history. In this podcast, we're looking to tell the story of each year leading all the way up to present day. In our previous episode, we talked about 1993, which was a recovery from the disastrous 1992, where the Dodgers went 81 and 81, but still finished 23 games out behind the 104-win Braves, with the small consolation that they were the ones to knock out the 103-win Giants. We saw an identity shift as our star, Daryl Strawberry, was hurt, only played in 32 games. Eric Davis got traded. Meanwhile, Eric Karras, Mike Piazza, Pedro Estacio, and Ramon Martinez became the new faces of the franchise. Mike Piazza became the first unanimous rookie of the year for the Dodgers in their entire history. So there were definitely some things to look forward to coming in to 1994. Now, 1994 was a busy year. It started off with the Northridge earthquake in California, hitting northern Los Angeles with a 6.7 magnitude earthquake in January, the costliest earthquake on record. Apartheid officially ended in South Africa. The U.S. hosted the World Cup and Norway hosted the Winter Games, which most Americans remember for Tanya Harding's ex-husband assaulting Nancy Kerrigan. And speaking of assault, in June, O.J. Simpson was arrested and fled in a white Bronco for two counts of murder. Netscape was the internet browser of choice, and in movies, Pulp Fiction, The Lion King, and Forrest Gump battled for the box office, and a surprise smaller film got nominated for Best Picture named Shawshank Redemption, but it would lose to Forrest Gump. I was 14 years old, I had graduated from middle school, and honestly, I was more into Star Trek than baseball at this point. Uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine was just getting into its golden years, surpassing Next Generation in the eyes of most critics, but of course, that's a story for another podcast. I did continue to be connected to the Dodgers, especially as these new players felt much more like my team. In fact, Raul Mondesi would be my favorite player, especially with his power, his speed, and that amazing arm and the throwing players out from right field. So the Dodger offseason was going to come with a whole wave of questions. Finally moving on from the outfield of dreams by trading Eric Davis meant that GM Fred Clare and the Dodgers were then moving on to build their team around Mike Piazza and Eric Karras and these young players that they had moving up. But even before the 93 season ended, the future had already got some buzz as the Dodgers signed their first round draft pick, Darren Dreifert. Now, Dreifert was picked second overall behind a high schooler named Alex Rodriguez and had won the NCAA Player of the Year. So he was just as about as exciting a prospect as the Dodgers had ever had. However... Dreifert's dad was negotiating on his behalf, and the negotiations very publicly dragged on before 
finally agreeing to sign a whopping $1.3 million bonus, one of the highest that the Dodgers had ever given for a draft pick. But that was still the future. For the time being, Fred Clare still had to figure out how to compete with these new super teams, the Giants and the Braves. Some help was coming in the form of the league restructuring. With the new teams coming into the league, the 94 season would see both leagues going from two divisions to three. From a west and an east to a west, a central and an east, which led the Braves and the Dodgers in different divisions. As well as adding one more chance to to make it to the playoffs with the invention of the wild card. Which still meant they had to defeat the Giants. And that challenge had become tougher as negotiations with the Dodgers' second baseman Jody Reed broke down. Now, Reed had been a steadying force on the Dodgers in 1993, especially with shortstop Jose Offerman still leading the league in errors. Reed only committed five errors, which was a Dodger record, and hit 276. Not all star numbers by any means, but again, steady. As had been Fred Clare's M.O., he offered what he thought was a fair offer, but said that once free agency started, the offer was off the table. And so for Reed, he offered three years, $7.8 million, which would have made him one of the top paid second basemen in baseball, but not really the top, top tier. And apparently, Reed believed he should be, turning down the Dodgers' offer in order to test the open market. But the open market had some issues. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But either way, the Dodgers were forced to start looking elsewhere. So first up, the Expos had an exciting young second baseman named Delano DeShields, who at only 24 years old had hit 295 with 43 stolen bases. And while not as elite defensively as Jody Reed, had only committed 11 errors. But the Expos were equally high on him, and they told Claire, if he wanted to shields, the price would be Pedro Martinez, which ended the conversation right there. So Claire turned his attention to veteran second baseman Robbie Thompson of the Giants, who was coming off an all-star campaign, winning both the Golden Glove and Silver Slugger. But his price tag then was even higher than Jody Reed's. So when the Giants offered him three years at $11.6 million, the Dodgers were not willing to match, leaving them between a rock and a hard place. Once Thompson was off the market, Jody Reed's agent was now demanding a similar deal with left Claire with only one option, Delino DeShields. Reportedly, he then made two calls, one to manager Tommy Lasorda and one to scout Ralph Avila, allowing either of them the veto of the whole trade, and all three agreed that the trade of Pedro Martinez for Delino DeShields would make sense. Considering the surplus of young pitchers that the Dodgers had and a definite need at second base, filling it with an exciting young player. So on November 19th, 1993, the trade that would go down as one of the worst in Dodger history happened. For those unaware, Pedro Martinez would spend three decent years in Montreal before winning a Cy Young Award, the first of three. He would go on to be an eight-time All-Star, averaging 17 wins a season with a career ERA of 2.93 and leading the league in strikeouts three times, ERA five times, and winning the pitching triple crown of strikeouts, wins, and ERA in 1999. A first ballot Hall of Famer, Pedro will sadly be remembered as a Red Sox instead of a Dodger.
Let's get back to 1994. The rest of the offseason was a pretty quiet one, especially with the collective bargaining agreement between the owners and the players expiring December 31st. And so the Dodgers had all the pieces they were going to get for the next season, except for one. On January 12th, the Dodgers signed 20-year-old Korean pitcher Chan Ho Park to be only the second Korean-born player to play in the major leagues. Park had been a star pitcher for the South Korea national baseball team, posting a 2.76 ERA and flashing a 99 mile per hour fastball. And adding him to the other young pitchers that the Dodgers had, the future looked really bright. But the offseason still had other challenges. And the first one was what to do with Mike Piazza. His spectacular rookie season sure looked like he was the real deal. And so the Dodgers offered him the customary raise that they had given their other star rookies, Ramon Martinez and Eric Harris, $500,000, which is a $375,000 raise from his first year. But given his history-making year, as well as being at a premium position like catcher, Piazza was asking for at least a million dollars far more than the Dodgers had ever paid a second-year player. So the two sides went back and forth, eventually landing on a three-year deal for $4.2 million, the most for a second-year player in Major League history. But the Dodgers were convinced that Piazza was the real deal, and they felt if he put up another few seasons at his Rookie of the Year level, that they'd be paying way more if they went into arbitration. So one issue down, and that left maybe a bigger one, Daryl Strawberry. They still owed Strawberry nearly $14 million for the next three years, but his injuries had led him to only 75 games over the last two years and ineffective games at that. Adding to this, his behavior was becoming more and more erratic as he was questioned for domestic violence shortly before last season ended, so at best was a question mark. But Tommy Lasorda was counting on his bat to follow Mike Piazza, breaking up all of the righties with left-handed power. And yet again, club officials swore that Daryl Strawberry's back was healthy. So the prospect of a lineup of Butler, DeShields, Piazza, Strawberry, Karras, Mondesi, Wallach, and Offerman was really exciting. And those good feelings lasted about two weeks. On March 2nd, a bat slipped out of rookie Mike Bush's hands in the batting cage, crashed into the net, and hit Delino DeShields, who was standing outside of the cage, right in the face. He'd require surgery, but Dr. Frank Job said that it would be an outpatient surgery and he should be able to play with a mask once he felt he was ready, but it was an ominous sign. The continuing labor discussions between the owners and the players Once the collective bargaining agreement had expired, the owners had unanimously agreed to a revenue-sharing salary cap, which the players were very much opposed to. But owners had not submitted a formal proposal to the Players Association, who feared either another lockout or simply imposing whatever system the owners wished, so they were considering striking in September. Both sides failed to take these seriously, however, as the president of the owner's player relations committee said that the owners would agree to a no-lockout pledge, though he declined to put that in writing. But there's only so much a team can do about those negotiations, so spring training went on. DeShields, Piazza, and Mondesi 
all had great springs, and the biggest surprise came at the end of spring when both Chan Ho Park and rookie Darren Dreifert both made the club out of spring, with Dreifert being the first Dodger to skip the minor leagues entirely since Sandy Koufax. So things were looking good heading into the season until the last game of the freeway series against the Angels, the last exhibition game of spring training. Now normally, the last spring training game has the starters playing a few innings before resting up from opening day, but on this day, one starter was nowhere to be found, literally. Daryl Strawberry not only failed to show up to Dodger Stadium for the game, but no one, including his family, seemed to know where he was. It had been a rough weekend for Daryl Strawberry. I mean, 93 had already been rough. He was not only injured, but also ineffective, but he had also failed to follow through with parts of his rehab. But spring training saw Daryl giving it all, showing up early, staying late, But none of that seemed to matter to the Dodger Stadium fans when he came back for the freeway series. He went 0 for 4, committed an error in the first game, and was getting booed mercilessly by the home fans. Then on Saturday, he hit a homer, and teammates said he appeared happy, but then disappeared. 24 hours later, GM Fred Clare received a phone call. Fred, I want you to know I'm okay, and I will be with the team tomorrow. No, Daryl, you won't be with the team, Fred Clare replied. We have come to the end of the road. You have failed to show the responsibility that is needed to be a part of this team. So Fred Clare met with Daryl Strawberry and his attorney the next day. His attorney, Robert Shapiro, was only two months before he would become a household name representing O.J. Simpson, was there to discuss Daryl's future. Daryl has a problem with substance abuse, Shapiro said. We have talked to the Players Association about getting assistance for him. Four days later, Daryl Strawberry entered the Betty Ford Rehab Clinic, and on May 25th, the Dodgers released him. On June 19th, Daryl signed with the San Francisco Giants, but after finishing out the season, he'd test positive for cocaine, be suspended, and then released. He'd go on to play five more years with the New York Yankees, even getting a championship ring in 1996, but his struggles continued. Uh, He'd be suspended two more times for drugs and various other legal charges. All told, Daryl Strawberry would play 17 years, hit 335 homers, and end with exactly 1,000 RBIs. But considering how his career started, with eight all-star appearances and three near-MVPs before the age of 30... Daryl Strawberry is one of the more tragic figures in Major League history. So who then were the faces of the 94 Dodgers? Well, again, Strawberry had been the biggest name on the team for the past three years, for good or for bad, and though he would not be a part of this team, the specter of his presence would loom, especially at the beginning of the season. But there was still plenty of other faces that we can talk about. As always, you gotta start with manager Tommy Lasorda. The consummate motivator, eternal optimist, this year seemed to be a little bit closer to Tommy's team. Though he was getting older, there were less of the big budget personalities. This young team that needed to be molded and led and inspired was much more up Tommy's alley. Then you have Mike Piazza. Strawberry's departure turned all of the focus onto him 
after only one year, but what a year. And after spring training, it really looked like that first year was no fluke. At first base, you had Eric Karras entering his third year, who again was solid, good power, and a consistent presence at first base. Tim Wallach at third base was also solid and had a great spring where he actually showed surprising power, which wasn't really what you were expecting from Tim Wallach. Then in the outfield, you had Raul Mondesi, who appeared to be a superstar in making. He he was a five-tool player who could run, hit, had power, an arm, could play defense, and he took right field by storm with seven outfield assists in spring, which is a crazy number. On the pitching side, for the first time in years, the pitching was a real question mark. Despite being the third best ERA in 1993, there was really no clear ace. And for Ramon Martinez, 1993 was actually encouraging. He made all 32 starts. It appeared that his velocity was starting to return, but he was still inconsistent. He led the league in walks as well as getting 12 losses. Oral Hershiser was getting older and was no longer the ace, but had turned into a solid presence. You knew what you were going to get almost every outing from Oral. Kevin Gross was probably the hardest thrower on the team, but he was battling tendonitis throughout the spring. Tom Candiotti, the knuckleballer, was probably the least question mark. He was the team's best starter in 1993, and the knuckler continued to baffle hitters. Now, Pedro Estacio, with the trade of Pedro Martinez, management put all of their eggs in the Pedro Estacio basket in him being the real deal. He had backed up an incredible first year with a really solid second year and even had moments of brilliance. At only 25 years old, he was probably the closest thing the Dodgers had to an ace. Turning to the bullpen, both Gott and McDowell were the anchors, though the loss of Pedro Martinez meant that the team would have to be dependent on their high-priced closer, Todd Worrell. After paying him $2.5 million a year for the past two years, Worrell had been a massive disappointment, both injured and ineffective. But then there was Darren Dreifert. At only 22 years old, he made the team out of spring, and the hope was that he could replace Pedro Martinez, bringing not only a weapon out of the pen, but one that had the ability to eat some innings. Rounding out the cast was Brett Butler, who had probably been a little bit lost in the shuffle of the Outfield of Dreams disaster, And all he'd done was play almost every single game the last three years, hitting right around 300 and really stabilizing center field. But at 37, his speed was diminishing. His $3.5 million salary as well started making these young, cheaper, flashy youngsters look much more enticing. And of course, the last piece was Delino DeShields. While in hindsight, that name might make Dodger fans cringe because we know what he cost the team, but in the spring of 1994, DeShields was dazzling. On the field, electric on the base pass, dynamic at the plate. As opposed to Jody Reed, who was solid but unspectacular, DeShields was one of those players that you would tune in just to watch. And finally, there was Jose Offerman. At 25 years old, entering his fifth season, this seemed to be his make-or-break year. 
His defense seemed to be improving. He had still led the league in errors in 1993, and his offense was sometimes flashy, but it was far too inconsistent. But he had come into camp putting on 25 pounds of muscle, and he seemed poised to prove himself. Tuesday, April the 5th, opening day. And there was plenty to distract the team. The drama with Daryl Strawberry was all that anybody could talk about. And maybe that was for the best, because the other reality was that there was no collective bargaining agreement between the players and the owners. The fear still lingered of another lockout like four years ago, but opening day came, it didn't come, so the games were played. Oral Hershazer got the opening day start for the fourth time and faced 46-year-old former Dodger Charlie Huff and the Florida Marlins. Oral started off sharp, making it through six innings, only allowing four hits and one run, but the story was much more about the offense. The start of the game could not have been scripted any better. DeShields beat out an infield single, Butler tripled him home, Butler then scores on an error, but then Charlie Huff's knuckleball locks in and he holds the Dodgers to four more hits into the seventh. Jim got struggles in the seventh, gives up a two-run home run to lose the lead, but then the formula comes up again in the bottom of the inning. DeShields leads off with a walk, steals second, gets bunted to third by Butler, and then knocked in by a Kara single. A sack fly in the eighth gives the Dodgers the lead, and then Todd Worrell comes in and sets down the Marlins on eight pitches for the save. Candiotti then outduels Ryan Bowen for game two, and while Ramon gets outdueled in game three by Chris Hammond, he did strike out 10. So at two and one, the season starts off pretty good. But then the super team Atlanta Braves were coming into town. And after the Braves hit Pedro Estacio for three homers, the early tests got grim. Game two and three were actually much better. Greg Maddox and Kevin Gross went toe-to-toe with the Braves pulling out in the 10th. And then game three had a tight game with the Braves coming from behind in the 7th. So despite being swept, there was a lot to like from that homestand. And the team was in high spirits heading out for an eight-game road trip. And the team started off strong. Candiotti dazzled St. Louis with a four-hit complete game victory. But then Ramon and Pedro both struggled. And despite a six-run rally, the Dodgers dropped the last two games of the series. Some bullpen struggles led to the team dropping two in Pittsburgh. And all of a sudden, the team was 3-8. and eight. Thankfully, the new divisional organization put the 11-1 Braves as somebody else's problem. So despite the slow start, the Dodgers were only three games out of first. But then was April 17th. After dropping the first two games to the first place Pirates, the Dodgers were getting frustrated on that day. They took their frustrations out on Pittsburgh. The game started ominously enough. Three weak ground outs from the Dodgers and a first inning blunder had them down 1-0 before the seats were warm. But in the second inning, Raul Mondesi beats out an infield single. Corey Snyder follows it up with a home run. The third inning passed quietly before Mondesi came up again and with two men on, deposited a 1-1 pitch over the left field wall. A Brett Butler bloop brings in another and all of a sudden, Tom Candiotti is feeling pretty good with six runs of support, a far cry from the lack of support from the year before. Mondesi comes up again in the fifth. This time he triples to center field. Corey Snyder follows with another home run and now it's 9-1. to 
The Dodgers weren't done as they added one more in the sixth. And then in the seventh, back-to-back walks followed by a single, a single, a double, a single, another double, and another single led to six more runs, bringing up Corey Snyder again. Snyder smacked the first pitch he saw for his third home run of the day, scoring three more, bringing the final score to 19-2. Tommy rests all the starters except for Raul Mondesi, who was a double away from hitting the cycle, but he grounded out in the ninth. The explosion seemed to spark something. Despite losing the next game in 11 innings, the team won six of their next eight, putting them a game out of first. The team would get a scare in the middle of the next homestand, however, as DeShields and Mondesi crashed into each other chasing a pop fly. DeShields was knocked out and rushed to the hospital and saw him miss the next seven games. Meanwhile, the offense was running through a few surprising sources, Corey Snyder and Tim Wallach. Snyder had essentially taken over left field after Strawberry was released and was hitting 367. And Tim Wallach, a career 257 hitter, was hitting 311 with six homers already. Meanwhile, mainstays Mike Piazza and Jose Offerman were both struggling. Piazza was only hitting 253, and Offerman was hitting under 200. But a daunting 10-game road trip loomed, and with stops in New York, Montreal, and San Francisco, the team did about as well as could have been hoped, going 4-6. They got DeShields back, which was good, as his energy on the base paths was sorely lacking. And splitting a four-game series with San Francisco left them two games out with a brief six-game homestand, which gave them some reason for hope. But those hopes seemed pretty quickly dashed. Houston jumped on Tom Candiotti for eight runs, knocking him out in the third, leaving the Dodgers down 8-2, to two, and Houston's Daryl Kyle had scattered only five hits over seven innings, making things look pretty hopeless. But in that game, Brett Butler, Jose Offerman, both walked to lead off the eighth inning, knocking Kyle out of the game. Delano DeShields, batting third, worked a 3-2 count before slapping a single to right, scoring Brett Butler. DeShields promptly steals second, a walk to Tim Wallach loads the bases, and then back-to-back sack flies brings the Dodgers within three, eight to five. Top of the ninth inning, however, Roger McDowell gets into trouble, walks the bases loaded, but then Al Osuna saves the day, strikes out Luis Gonzalez, pops out Ken Caminiti, so heading into the bottom of the ninth, it remained eight to five. The bottom of the order was due up, however, But they came in clutch. Carlos Hernandez and Mitch Webster each singled to start off the inning, bringing up the top of the order with two men on. Brett Butler struck out. However, Jose Offerman grounded out, giving the Dodgers only one more chance. So Lasorda rolls the dice, having Mike Piazza, who was getting the day off, pinch hit for Delano DeShields, who was two for three, but Tommy wanted the righty-lefty matchup, plus Piazza's power in there. And the gamble paid off as Piazza grounded a single right past the shortstop, scoring Hernandez and Webster, bringing the Dodgers within one and putting the game in the hands of Tim Wallach. Wallach took the first pitch for a ball, but then the second pitch he slammed over the left field wall for a two-out, two-run game-winning home run. The Dodgers poured out onto the field and the faithful fans that had stayed, which were not many, gave Wallach a curtain call. The energy did spill out into the next game when they walked off the Astros again, this time with a bases-loaded error in the 10th. 
And then to add insult to injury, the third game had the Astros' Shane Reynolds throwing a perfect game into the sixth inning before Raul Mondesi hit a curveball over the left field fence. Meanwhile, Pedro Estacio threw a four-hit shutout leading to the Dodgers sweeping the series for the first time all year. And the good times continued. The Padres came into town, and the Dodgers swept them as well, completing a perfect homestand, moving them into a first-place tie with the San Francisco Giants. A four-game series in Colorado went almost perfectly, the only blemish coming from a ninth-inning meltdown by Darren Dreifert. But the team recovered quickly, heading to Cincinnati, and pulled two out of three, the only loss coming on a blown save by Jim Gott. So all told, despite some concerns about the bullpen, the Dodgers went 5-2 and two on the road trip, one of their most successful in years. And with the Giants scuffling, the team took a three-and-a-half game lead, heading home for a nine-game homestand. And with the last place Cubs coming into town, all lights appeared to be green. But the first game saw Chicago beat up Kevin Gross, despite him hitting his own three-run home run. And that was followed by a four-hit shutout by the Cubs' Willie Banks, and the team was on the verge of losing their momentum. But again, the Giants were scuffling too, so back-to-back walk-off victories allowed the Dodgers to salvage the homestand, going four and five and actually increasing their lead to four games. But a series in Atlanta against the best team in baseball was not what the doctor ordered as they promptly got swept, then lost a heartbreaker in Florida, where despite hitting four home runs, including a 477-foot grand slam from Mike Piazza, the bullpen blew a five-run lead in the seventh inning. So the team met to figure out what to do with this bullpen. The bullpen had blown 14 of 23 save opportunities. Todd Worrell was still on the injured list. And mainstays Jim Gott and Al Osuna both had ERAs over five. Darren Dreifert, who had taken over the closer's role with his blazing fastball, was struggling with an ERA of nearly six. So the next game, Ramon Martinez decided to take things into his own hand, pitched a complete game three-hit shutout, throwing 128 pitches and giving the bullpen the day off. But the very next game, the frustrations continued. Reinstated closer Todd Worrell blew a 4-2 lead in the bottom of the ninth, and to make matters worse, apparently he shook off an order from the bench to hold the runners, opting instead to pitch out of the windup, allowing an easy stolen base that would eventually tie the game. So the team headed to Chicago with some major concerns, despite the two-game lead in the division. Piazza had caught fire. He lifted his average nearly 50 points over the last 20 games, and both Brett Butler and Raul Mondesi were hitting over 320. And Tim Wallach and Eric Karras were driving in their share of runs. In fact, into June, the Dodgers had the second highest scoring offense in the league. But Delano DeShields was back on the injured list. Jose Offerman was hitting less than 200. So in addition to the bullpen, there were still some major holes. But then complete games from Kevin Gross and Tom Candiotti helped the cause. And after taking two of three from the Cubs, the team headed home, maintaining a three and a half game lead. So the pressure was on the starters, trying to go deep in every single game. And the next game had Ramon Martinez battle for eight innings. And the offense carried him to the victory. Worrell actually got his third save. The next game, Pedro Astacio 
went the distance and extended the team's lead to a season-high four and a half games. But the pressure to go deep was starting to take its toll. As Kevin Gross, Oral Hershiser, and Ramon Martinez all got beaten up over the next three games, though it did appear that help was on the way. As another rookie, the 21-year-old Ishmael Valdez made his major league debut out of the pen. Valdez was nicknamed the Rocket and had been discovered by Dodger scout Mike Brito, who had famously discovered Fernando 15 years earlier, and Valdez brought some excitement out of the pen. He worked three perfect innings in relief, but again, despite the three-game losing streak, the rest of the division was struggling. Only the Dodgers were over 500, so they still had a three-game lead over the now second-place Colorado Rockies. A seventh-inning grand slam by Mike Piazza salvaged one game of that series, and the team headed to San Diego to face the last-place Padres. But the pitching woes continued. The team dropped two of three before heading to Houston to face the Astros, who were coming off a tough road trip to Colorado themselves, and maybe they took their aggression out on the Dodgers. They jumped on both Ramon and three relievers to the tune of 16 runs, but maybe that was what woke the team up. Combined with Pedro Astacio, who had become the team's stopper, he went eight and two-thirds innings in the next start to secure the victory, and despite the bullpen struggles, Todd Worrell had not allowed a run in his last five appearances, and only had allowed three runs in his last 15. So the team took the last two games of the series from Houston and salvaged a three-and-three three road trip, firing them up for a 14-game homestand, which would lead them into the All-Star break. The homestand was solid, but unspectacular. They went 8-6. and six. The highlight was probably Raul Mondesi's walk-off homer in the 10th on July 5th, salvaging one game against the surprising Montreal Expos, who came in having won 19 of their last 30. So with the All-Star break, the Dodgers stood at 46-42, and 42, five games in front of the Colorado Rockies. Montreal and Atlanta were looking like the teams to beat, but they were in another division, so that could wait until the postseason. Mike Piazza was the only Dodger All-Star, and he started at catcher, though Raul Mondesi and Brett Butler probably were deserving, though outfield in the National League was, was pretty loaded. But it was a pretty exciting All-Star game. The National League trailed 5-7 going into the ninth and facing saves leader Lee Smith. Fred McGriff, pinch hitting for Ozzie Smith, hit a two-run home run to tie the game. And the National League won a walk-off on a Moise Salou double in the 10th. But all everyone could really talk about was the possibility of a strike. The owners were still firm about insisting on a salary cap, which the players were never going to agree to. But the owners did have the power to just enforce it after the World Series ended, so that left the players in a tough spot. The union was talking about striking in August, taking away the owners' September and postseason revenue, but no one really wanted that option. But the two sides weren't talking, and so that made everyone nervous. So after the break, the Dodgers had a grueling road trip, playing 13 games and 13 days, and they felt it, going 3-10. and 10. Their good feelings and five-game lead vanished, and they limped home up by only half a game. The offense wasn't the problem. They averaged more than four runs a game, but the pitching was. The bullpen continued to struggle, and the starters were unable to go deep in every game. So coming home for a seven-game homestand, the Dodgers faced the most powerful offense in the National League, the Houston Astros, and their MVP favorite, Jeff Bagwell, leading the way. But despite Bagwell hitting two home runs, his 35th and 36th, the Dodgers pitchers were dominant, leading to a surprising three-game sweep, 
The Padres came into town next, and they split a four-game series, leading the Dodgers 54-54 and with a two-and-a-half game lead. Next up was the Colorado Rockies, and the bats came alive, as they tend to do in Colorado, led by Raul Mondesi hitting 636 for the series, giving the team the first two games before a Todd Worrell implosion gave the Rockies a four-run ninth in the third game. But the team did manage to take two of three from the Reds next, increasing their lead to three and a half games over the Giants, leading up to August the 12th. From the first day of the year, the day that the previous CBA had expired, the entire MLB had been in limbo. The season thus far had been played with no agreement between players and owners, And though negotiations had continued sparsely, the owners were viewing this as a make-or-break moment. To them, the dramatic rise of player salaries were cutting into profits, especially for the smaller market teams, and something needed to be done. So the decision for some time had been a salary cap, just like the NBA already have and as the NFL was planning to implement. Now, the idea behind a salary cap is that there would be a maximum and minimum salary limit, and each team would have to be inside of those limits. The eventual limits proposed was 50% of, quote, defined revenues, and that the teams have to spend between 110% and 84% of that number. So now, in theory... That would allow smaller market teams to compete with the larger market teams and prohibit the wealthier owners from simply outbidding each other over free agents. But the players were vehemently opposed to this, concerned about the decrease in player salaries as well as the owner's loose definition of defined revenues, among other things. But the owners are literally the owners. They own their individual teams. So theoretically, they could do whatever they want with or without the player's consent. And that was what the lockout of 1990 was about. The owners simply saying, if you don't agree, then you don't play. But this time, the fear was that a lack of agreement meant that the owners would simply impose the salary cap without the union's approval. So that was what led to the players' talk of a strike, which was really the only weapon that they had at their disposal. And after the players rejected the owner's proposal and the owners rejected the players' counteroffer on July 31st, the players set the deadline of August 12th. If no agreement was reached by then, then the players would walk, threatening both the pennant chases and the playoffs, the most profitable time of year for the owners. As that date got closer and closer, teams and fans were getting more and more nervous. And for the Dodgers, remembering the 1981 strike, where the season ended up split into two halves and the winner of each season played each other, the team really wanted to make sure they were in first place before a possible strike. And as games ended on August 11th, the team left the clubhouse not knowing when they'd return. So the 1994 players' strike begins on August 12th. I'm sure there are plenty of podcasts about all the ins and outs about the strike itself, so I'm not going to go into too much detail, but it is a large part of Dodger history. I mean, first of all, we're probably still feeling the impact of that strike today, as we fans felt betrayed by both the owners and the players, with both sides accusing the other of doing it sheerly out of greed 
We, the fans, seem forced to choose between the millionaire players and the multi-millionaire owners. And in the end, attendance was dramatically down the next several years and may have never fully recovered. So, what happened in 1994? Well, as I've been alluding to, the MLB's labor issues were nothing new. Tracing all the way back to the Black Sox scandal of 1919, where Charles Comiskey's refusal to pay his players led to them turning to gamblers. And even before that, ironically, when Comiskey himself was a player in the 1880s, a number of notable players formed their own league out of protests of overpay. But in recent times, with the big money of network television coming into play, the gulf had widened leading to work stoppages in 72, 73, 76, 80, 81, 85, and 90. And adding fuel to the fire, the players had filed three separate cases against the owners alleging collusion regarding free agents. The cases alleged that owners had teamed up to limit competition on free agents. One specific incident was where future Hall of Famer Carlton Fisk had received a contract offer from the Yankees' George Steinbrenner. Then Steinbrenner reportedly received a call from the White Sox' Jerry Reinsdorf, who was Fisk's previous team, and then shortly thereafter, Steinbrenner rescinded his offer. Judges then found the owners guilty of all three cases, awarding the players $280 million, which the owners may or may not have actually paid. But either way, there was zero trust between the two sides. Adding more fuel, the commissioner of baseball, Faye Vincent, had publicly agreed with the findings, saying that the owners had colluded, which prompted the owners to demand for his resignation. No suitable replacement could be found, so the Milwaukee Brewers owner, Bud Selig, stepped in on a temporary basis to be commissioner, despite being one of the specific owners listed in the collusion case. Now, to be fair, the idea of the baseball commissioner was actually instituted after the 1919 Black Sox scandal as a representative of the owners. So technically, the commissioner does work for the owners. So he is not, by default, as much of a representative of the players. But that's a story for another time. So again, the CBA, or Collective Bargaining Agreement, between the owners and the players had expired on January 1st, and the owners were committed to this salary cap, The players refused, leading to the impasse. The players again felt slighted as the owners took six months to officially submit their proposal, which the players' union quickly rejected, submitted their own proposal, which the owners quickly rejected too. So then, the owners decided to withhold the $7.8 million that they had agreed to pay into player pensions, and the final straw was the Senate Judiciary Committee voted against antitrust legislation against the owners, which led to the players feeling like they had no other choice but to strike. So the players walked off the job after the games on August 11th, which did not heat up negotiations as much as one had hoped. Federal mediators were brought in, and on August 31st, a three and a half hour negotiation session showed no results, and no further talks were scheduled. Acting Commissioner Bud Selig set the date of September 9th to salvage the season, and on September 8th, the Players Association submitted a proposal of a luxury tax and a profit sharing, which the owners rejected, saying it didn't go far enough. 
So on September 14th, Bud Selig canceled the rest of the season as well as the playoffs and the World Series. The first year without a World Series since 1904. So we'll talk more about the strike and especially how it ended in our next episode, but what was lost from the 1994 season? Well, notably, the Montreal Expos were having their best season ever with a record of 74-40, and 40, a four, six games ahead of the Braves. Many experts point to the stoppage as the beginning of the end for their entire franchise, with the team dissolving into a fire sale the next season, eventually resulting in relocating to Washington and becoming the Nationals. Additionally, the New York Yankees had the second best record in baseball, giving their longtime captain, Don Mattingly, his best shot of finally making the postseason after 13 years, which he never did. The Padres' Tony Gwynn was hitting 394, giving him his best shot as being the first player to hit 400 since Ted Williams. The Giants' Matt Williams was only 16 homers away from catching Roger Maris for the single-season home run record, but never hit more than 35 home runs after that. Ironically, it may have been actually good timing for the Astros' Jeff Bagwell. His 368 average and 116 RBIs beat out Matt Williams' 43 home runs for MVP, but Bagwell had just broken his hand in the second-to-last game, so the time he would have lost may have actually cost him the MVP race. Now, what about the Dodgers? Well, it had been their best season in a few years, finishing in first place, admittedly only two games over 500, but having won nine of their last 13, and with the pitching staff feeling like it was finally getting its feet under them, it felt like with more time, something special could have happened, but it didn't. Raul Mondesi with his 306 average, 16 home runs, and, and league-leading 17 outfield assists got all of the first-place votes for Rookie of the Year, while Mike Piazza won his second straight Silver Slugger. All in all, especially considering the way that the season began with the drama of Daryl Strawberry, the youth movement really carried this team, which for once was more worried about their pitching than their offense. Raul Mondesi had definitely arrived, and Mike Piazza had cemented himself as a superstar, and Tim Wallach had maybe the best season of his career. On the flip side, Delano DeShields had to be at least a minor disappointment, hitting nearly 30 points below his career average, but did provide the spark that the team had hoped for. More concerning was Jose Offerman, whose defense was noticeably improved, but his 210 average in his make-or-break year may have been the end of the road. Pitching, again, was the biggest concern, as really only Kevin Gross had a somewhat solid year. But the pressures of not being able to depend on the bullpen had affected the starters as well, and the staff ERA went from third best to tenth. None of the bullpen pieces could be said to have been successful, with the possible exception of rookie Ishmael Valdez, who did come into 21 games and showed remarkable poise for a 20-year-old. But as for the next season, would there be a next season? By October, President Bill Clinton had vowed to lock both sides into the Oval Office until they came up with a compromise, but even that didn't seem too likely. But let's tackle that in our next episode. 
Thank you for joining us for Dodger Story. And as always, it's a beautiful day for a ball game today. Well, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball.